Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in films, in books, and in popular culture. My name is Bruce Markison. Welcome to the latest edition of our Ghostly Gallery Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Tracy Asteria. And our guest on the show coming up is Tucker Christine. Tucker is one of the foremost authorities and also collectors of everything related to Dracula. We'll tell you more about Tucker in just a moment. But first, we welcome into the studio co-host Tracy Asteria. Tracy, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Bruce? Well, I'm doing very well. And I was thinking of you today. I went to the local used book sale at the Cooperstown Village Library. Uh, It's a very hot and humid day today. uh, And it was outside. So it was uh, not the most comfortable situation. But I did come up with a bit of a gem that I was able to purchase for all of $2. And I know that you'll be interested in it. It is three complete novels by one of your favorite authors, whom we talked about on our very first show. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Dean R. Kuntz, number one New York Times bestselling author, as it says on the cover. So it's got three complete novels. One is called Shattered. The second is Whispers. The third is Watchers. Are you familiar with any and all of these novels? Oh, my goodness. I believe I've read Whispers for sure many, many years ago. Um, I'm so excited for you, (laughs) to be honest. Um, You will enjoy those three. And it's a three in one. That's even more fantastic. Uh, I might have to ask you to borrow that. (laughs) But that's fantastic. Um, I don't believe I've read all three of those, just the one whispers and in it, he's a fantastic author, and I need to start exploring more books from him again. It's been way too long since I visited his novels. Well, the total of the three novels is 690 pages. Oh, 690 my pages for three novels. So it's about the size of one typical Stephen King book. And since I'm a slow reader, I appreciate the fact that Kuntz uh, writes a lot shorter than King. I love King, but... Mm-hmm. You know, his 600, 700, 800 page or more books, uh, they they take me several months to get through. It looks like I can get through these uh, a lot quicker. So you've definitely read Whispers. You like that one. Yes. Uh, You're not as sure about Shattered and Watchers? I don't believe I've actually read those. And if I have, it's been a long time. But I'm writing those two novels down actually right now, just because I need to get back into that. Well, it was a major investment, $2 (laughs) for the book, hardcover, really in pretty darn good shape. And uh, I'd be glad to mail it to you up in Nova Scotia when I'm done. Hardcover Uh, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really nice. Nice cover with kind of a haunted house on the left side and these trees that are blowing in the wind. Very colorfully done. It's really, really nice. And it's got some good reviews from the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Dallas Morning News, uh, People, and New York Daily News as well. Lots of lots of favorable reviews on some of these That's collected exciting. works of Dean Koontz. Always love these uh, local used book sales. It's a popular event in Cooperstown. Always takes place the final weekend of June here in our small village. Mm-hmm. And it also coincides with an antiquarian book fair that they had on Saturday. So a great tradition that we have here in central New York in Cooperstown at the end of June. 
All right. That's the small talk portion of the program. Not that it's <laughs> insignificant, but uh, it's not as significant as our guest coming up. And his name is Tucker Christine. Tucker is a leading expert on Dracula. He is one of the foremost collectors of Dracula books and memorabilia. Uh, he's also the publisher of a literary magazine. It's called Dracula Beyond Stoker. And it features many articles related to the Dracula legend. One of the great things is that Dracula is actually in the public domain. So all sorts of people, writers, poets, long form writers, short storytellers, uh, they're all continuing uh, with the Dracula legend. And some of these shorter stories are featured in Tucker's magazine. It just began in 2022. Uh, I've got a couple of editions of it already. We're going to talk more about that later in the show. Tucker has also been a featured guest on the Rosenbach Museum's popular Sundays with Dracula virtual program uh, hosted by Ed Pettit. Ed is a real close friend of Tucker and becoming a friend of mine too. I got to meet him in Cooperstown. Uh, he and his wife came here last summer, uh, took a ghost tour with me. Uh, Ed has done a great job with not only Sundays with Dracula, but Sundays with Frankenstein. He did Sundays with Jane Eyre. Uh, and he's been doing really all of this through the Rosenbach Museum, these virtual programs uh, the Dracula and Frankenstein programs uh, were on Sunday afternoons, and uh, he's uh, been venturing into some other uh, literary tales as well. We should mention that Tucker Christine started reading Bram Stoker's Dracula as a third grader, which may be some sort of an unofficial record, and his interest in the subject of Dracula has never waned. A uh, trucker, a uh, trucker, Tucker, welcome to the program. We thank you very much for uh, being with us on the Ghostly Gallery podcast. How have you been? I'm great, Bruce. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Let's talk uh, about this yeah. primary well, initial me. interest in Dracula. You were in third grade. You tried to order the book through the great old scholastic books that were uh, offered in schools for so many years. Tell us that story about uh, trying to get your first taste of Dracula through scholastic books. Didn't quite work out the way you anticipated. No, it did not. I, I went to Catholic school and the, uh, I was an avid reader from the time I was able to read. And as soon as I got the, the catalog for the book fair, I, I don't even remember what the cover was, but the cover of the edition of Dracula just spoke to me. And that's what I wanted. I saved up my money for it. And when it was our class's day to go down to the library to do the book fair, I picked that up and I took it over to the library with my money. And she told me that that was for the seventh and eighth graders that I couldn't buy that book. So I didn't buy anything that day. And I went home and I, I told my mom and my mom took me to uh, the local B. Dalton booksellers at the Neshaminy Mall. And I, we actually found it. I didn't know at the time what a remainder was, but I found it as a remainder it was like maybe a dollar, dollar fifty. Hmm. It had. It was the. Uh, I was in third grade in like eighty three, and this would have been the remainder of the uh, Frank Langella cover. So that was my first edition. Was the Frank Langella movie tie-in cover, and I I read that. And at that time, I did not understand why they wouldn't let me read it because to me it was just an adventure story. It wasn't until like my third or fourth reading that I realized everything that was in there that was over my head the first time I read it. Yeah. But still, if it was over my head, there was no reason I couldn't read it either. 
So, Tucker, when the teacher told you you couldn't get it, this is for older grades, were you really upset? I was. I, I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be you can't tell me I can't read something. Yeah. Um, but your mother was able to compensate by um, making sure that you got a book in another avenue. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom is always supportive of all of all me and my two brothers of anything we wanted to do within reason. And that's certainly within reason. So. Obviously, the the writing of Stoker grabbed you right from the beginning, even though, you know, it was certainly written at a higher level. It was something that you didn't to- totally grasp. As you said, it was a bit over your head. Um, but there had to be something about Stoker's writing that really appealed to you right away, even at a third grade level. Well, yeah, it was the first novel I'd ever read that was epistolatory. I'd, I'd never even conceived of that before. And that, that blew my mind as an eight-year-old, you know. Um, I don't know that it's – I don't know there's anything specific in the writing. I think it's just it grabbed me under the right circumstances at the right time. Um, I've, I've never analyzed it before to try to figure out what that was. But it's just everything Everything I found at that particular age has stuck with me. It was two years later I discovered Freddy Krueger. I became a Freddy Krueger obsessive also as an older reader now though you certainly do have more of an appreciation for stoker's style uh what he did for those by the way not aware of uh, exactly what an epistolary novel is it is comprised from uh, letters diary entries from all different characters within the book so each chapter each section really comes from the perspective of a different character, uh, even though it all weaves into, you know, one pretty flowing chronological narrative. Uh, but as you as you look at this, you know, a little bit more sophisticated so many years later, and you think about what it is about his literary style, his ability to tell a story, what really grabs you about Stoker? Um, again, it's, it's really just that particular novel. I don't think he ever che- achieved that again. Or, or before he, he wasn't great other than that. And, and a couple of short stories, he's readable, certainly, except for maybe Lair of the white worm, which is a, like a fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, it, it's really just that novel. And, and that's probably it. It's, <laughs> One thing that really grabs me about it is the chapter about the ill-fated ship, the Demeter. Oh, that's a Landing at Whitby. Um, There's a lot of great stuff in the book. There are a lot of great chapters. But to me, that chapter, that's at the top of the list. Yeah. And there's he did a great thing in that novel where everybody is fully developed, yet underdeveloped at the same time. So you feel for these characters – but at the same time, you can you can interpret them your own way. So there's like Quincy, for instance. Everybody everybody sees Quincy as this 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 cowpoke, you know, this 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 Texas manly man. But that's really only the way that the other characters portray him. He's not he's not portrayed that way by Stoker. He's portrayed that way by the other characters. Mm. And and a lot of the a lot of the book is just the characters' perceptions is not really 
the characters themselves. And I think that's a lot of fun because it, it, in doing that, the book can change. Every time I read the book is different. Tracy, I know you wanted to jump in with a question. I did. I was just kind of curious, and I'm sorry to kind of backtrack a little bit, Tucker, but when you were in grade three and you were at that that um, book fair, what made you want to choose that book? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I just, I was really curious, like what prompted you? Was it the cover or what was it? I, in my memory, it was the cover, even though at this point in time, I can't remember what the particular cover mm-hmm. was in that edition. Okay. Um, at the same time, I was, I was into the, the, the count von count on Sesame street. So I, I was familiar with the images of Dracula. I count Chocula was my favorite cereal. So <laughs> I was, I was automatically drawn to the character as I knew it at that time. Oh, very nice. Um, okay. Because, they, 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 they prime children for adult stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, that's fascinating. I was just kind of curious, just what, what was your initial perception and what made you want to choose that particular book? Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. I think the first edition of Dracula that I ever read had an image of Bela Lugosi from 1931. And at that point, I really didn't I was so young, I had no idea of the difference between the book and the movie. I, I'm not even sure if I knew that it was Lugosi. I know, thinking back to it, that, yeah, it was Lugosi, but I was not that familiar with his imagery at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting how they uh, they draw in readers with um, the, those film tie-ins, which uh, often are so different. The film's so different from what Stoker wrote in 1897. Right. Tucker, for those not familiar with the novel, let's talk about some of the major differences between the character of Dracula that we hear about in the book and the typical portrayal of Dracula in film and TV. For example, Stoker's Dracula looks very different from what Bela Lugosi gave us in 1931. Maybe we can start there. Give Give us a sense of how the Dracula in Stoker's novel, in his mind, it didn't look anything like Bella. No, not at all. He's he's very gaunt. He's very pale. He's got a long white mustache. Uh, he's got hairy palms. He's got long fingernails. He stinks. <laughs> 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 he's not debonair at all. He's he's a monster. <laughs> okay, so the physical difference is right there from the start. What about some of the other differences? Maybe some having to do with you know, vampire lore, the issue of sunlight, the ability to transform into other animals. Well, he does have the ability to transform into other animals, and he does that frequently. Um, he's not hes not killed by sunlight. He's affected by sunlight, but not killed by sunlight. So he doesn't have his full powers when the sun is out. But, he, but there are scenes in the novel where he is walking about during the day. There's actually a scene in the book where he's wearing a he's wearing a straw hat, just walking around in disguise. Oh my really. goodness! He's he's actually he's got a sense of humor in the book too, which I really it's a dark sense of humor, but I I really like it. And it doesn't I don't think everybody catches it, but there's there's a scene where Jonathan's just been attacked and he's arguing with Dracula, he wants to leave, and then Dracula finally convinces him to go back to his bedroom. And Dracula blows him a kiss. <laughs> it's just, I laugh every time. Yeah. That might be more of a modern day vampire interpretation because, you know, Lugosi's Dracula 1931 
there's not a lot of humor there. It's, it's, you know, there's some double entendre with some of the things that he says, but there's not a lot of humor like we, what we might see in a, in a more recent film, something like uh, a Fright Night uh, in, in terms of va- uh, vampire treatment. Um, so it, it's, in a way, I guess you could say Stoker was ahead of his time and that he was able to introduce humor to a very serious topic. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the accent. Bela Lugosi has this very distinctive Hungarian accent. He was really still learning the language. He was uh, memorizing his lines phonetically. It really wasn't until 1948 when he did Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein that he was much more comfortable uh, with the English language. But he's very deliberate. He's very halting in the way that he speaks in the movie. Does Stoker give us any clues as to the kind of accent that his Dracula had, how how his Dracula spoke? So Dracula himself feels that he has a terrible accent. He, he wants part of his reasoning for keeping Jonathan on, besides the fact that he's going to kill him and not let him go home, is that he wants to get better with his English. Jonathan doesn't perceive that Dracula has that per- terrible of an accent. He says, your English is, is almost perfect. There's nothing I can teach you that you don't already know. Hmm. And But Dracula doesn't want to be perceived as a foreigner when he gets to England. So he wants it to be gone. But he, he obviously does have a hint of an accent. Do we get a sense about his English improving over the course of the novel? Uh, not that I remember. No. Okay. Let's talk about your collection of Dracula books, which is really fascinating to me. There have been hundreds of editions and adaptations of Dracula done over the years, ever since it was first published in England in 1897. It's never gone out of print, even once, which is amazing. Give us a sense, Tucker, if you will, about the collection of books that you have and and the wide range of volumes. I knew you were going to ask me this, so I I attempted to do a count this morning. Okay. And... uh, I, I gave up at 300. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, it's, it's probably 75, between 75 and 100 are specifically the 1897 novel in one form or another. Different. I have, uh, I have all, every time I find a different paperback cover, I pick that up. Every time they put out a new edition with a new foreword or new artwork or anything, I pick that up. I have, uh, Back in the 40s or World War II, they put out armed service editions. There were special editions for the soldiers, and they did two printings of that. I have both printings there. The uh, the 45 one is e- the second printing in 45 is easier to find in good condition because the war was over at that point. The 44 one, the war was still going on. They're they're pretty beat up if you find them. Um, then on top of that, I have uh, foreign adaptations. I have plays. I have novels that just use the characters. I have books of short stories. It, it, it goes on and on. It became an obsession. It's, it's really uh, an illness. <laughs> do you have children's versions of the book? I do. I, I, there's a lot of children's versions. Um, actually, the, the children's versions, I think there's too many. <laughs> I, I, I started being more picky with the ones I pick up for children's versions just because there's, there's so, so many. And, and some of them... 
some of them I'm just picking up for the novelty and I'm not even reading them. So it's like, I became like, what's the point? Yeah. So you stopped counting at 300. So I think we can safely say you're probably closing in on 400 or more. I would say probably more. I would probably say closer to five. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Where do you keep them all? I have, I have a room in my house. We have a, it's essentially, we call it the library, but it's where we keep everything. Always as a junk room, as a book room, as uh, we have our paper shredder in there. We have our hamper in there. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a room in the middle of the house that houses everything. And uh, I've got seven, seven six-foot bookshelves in there full of my books and my wife's books. And then... Uh, that's where all the Dracula ones are, is in that room. Oh, wow. But you've got them all in one section, right? And, and organized yes, in yes. some way. Yeah. As, as best I can. I, I reorganize maybe once every year. I'm, I'm due for another one because I'm, I'm a little past that year mark. But uh, I buy so many throughout the year that they land up getting stacked up until I have time to reorganize again. Really? I I do try to keep them all together, like a distance of Dracula books about Dracula, short story books. So if you invited me over to your house, Uh not hinting that I want you to do that, but I think it'd be (laughs) cool. You're you're welcome anytime. (laughs) That's great. So if I said to you, Tucker, um, I need you to come up with a signet paperback edition of Dracula. How quickly could you produce it? I actually, right now, off the top of my head, I know exactly where it is. Wow. Not, I couldn't say that for everyone, but I particularly know that one. Let me ask you this, Tucker. Do you have any of the early editions of Dragon? The earliest one I have is the uh, International Adventure Library from 1910. It was wow. a, as commonly known as a Three Owls edition. Um, that, that's the earliest one I have. I believe that I've been priced out of anything earlier than that. Uh, all, the auctions just keep going up and up, and it, it's just getting ridiculous trying to get my hands on any, anything earlier. Oh, my gosh. Do you have a favorite edition book? Like, do you have a, a book that means the most to you in your collection? Um, I think the uh, Armed Service Edition one. I really love the Armed Service Edition books. Oh, wow. What is it specifically you like about it? I like the there's the history of it. It was it was made for the soldiers, um, especially the the first edition that was put out during the mm-hmm. war that I have a copy of. That book saw something. You know? mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know the history behind it, but that, that book was with somebody when they saw something. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm gonna have to look that one up online and take a peek at the cover. You know, I was mentioning earlier at the start of the show that. We have this antiquarian book fair, and I went to it last year, and there was an edition of Dracula, and it wasn't a first edition. It might have been, might have been a third edition, something like that. Uh, it wasn't a particularly impressive book in terms of its condition or the cover, uh, and I was just kind of thumbing through it, and then in the upper right-hand corner on one of the first pages, uh, I saw a price. Uh, Eight hundred dollars. I said, "This this is out of my range." But uh, this is, you know, for maybe a second or a third or maybe a later edition. I, I know it wasn't a first edition. That, that's first edition right. book. What what kind of price are we talking about? First edition? Yeah. First edition. You're looking at upwards of fifty thousand. Oh wow! Wow. 
50,000 plus. How about the 1910 that you have? What does that go for? Uh, I think I paid 300 for that. Uh, it needed some work when I got it, but I, I, I got the work done. I had a, a tray case built for it. You had to do some restoration work on it. I don't do it personally, but I had to have some done. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but I, I had some work done to it. Yeah, and that, that really helped? Yeah. I just got a, a Japanese edition also. Uh, it got published in Japan in the 50s, and I was able to get a friend turned me on to an auction that I, I would have missed, and I was able to get a hold of that, and that needed some restoration work too. But I, I that was just a re-glue. Oh, wow. I, I got that. And I have a, a case being built for that as well. I'm curious about some of the illustrated versions. And I think actually when you were on Sundays with Dracula, I think I sent an email to Ed Pettit and asked him for his advice on what he felt was the best illustrated version of Dracula. And then he immediately said, you better talk to Tucker Christine about that. <laughs> uh, so tell us about that, that version, which I have now and is really beautiful. I don't remember which one I told you because I, I, my opinions change every day. So. Um, it was the one, it, it shows him on the cover. He's got like white hair, white beard. I believe he's scaling a building. That's, that the, really? uh, the, that's the Greg Hildebrand. Yes, Hildebrand. They're, they're phenomenal. Those illustrations are fully painted. They're, they're awesome. And he's, he's, uh, He's portrayed the way he's uh, talked about in the book with the with the white mustache and the the gaunt skin is 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 really fantastic. But that's not my favorite anymore. <laughs> okay, it's changed. So, what's your favorite? I got to get that. Uh, in the early two thousands, uh, an artist by the name of Barry Moser did a, an edition, and they're all uh, wood engravings. They, he did a wood engraving for like every character in in the book, and it is just impressive. Any anytime I see wood engravings, I'm really impressed by it because of all the work that goes into that. But this one's really awesome. All right, I've got to buy that one. Moser, <laughs> M O S E R. Yes. Early two thousands. Early two thousands. Make sure you buy the one with just the book because the one that there's one that comes with uh, with extra prints, like like presentation prints, and that one goes for about three grand. You don't want to get stuck with that. <laughs> Uh, believe me, when I see uh, a four-digit price tag, I'm immediately repelled by it, <laughs> and I move on to something else. But uh, all right, Barry Moser, early 2000s, that is now your favorite illustrated version of the book. Yeah. Now, you don't just collect books, as important as that is, and I think as, as neat as it is, but you also get into other kinds of memorabilia. Tell us about some of those things. So I, I do movies, I do action figures, I do... Uh, uh, nutcrackers, uh, folk art dolls, all, all kinds of any, I'm not going to say anything that I find, but anything interesting that I find, I pick up. What are some of the movies you have? Anything that comes out on Blu-ray, I try to get now. Um, the most recent one I got is a really weird film called, uh, Dracula, the dirty old man. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen this one. I, I saw it once a long time ago on VHS and had almost completely forgotten about it. And then I, I got an email saying it was available on Blu-ray. I picked it up again and I'd forgotten how weird this movie is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real low budget Dracula movie. It was shot in Texas in the sixties, maybe late sixties, early seventies. And I don't know what they were trying to make and we'll never know 
because they lost the soundtrack for it. And then they re-recorded the soundtrack without using the screenplay. Mm. And they just improvised the soundtrack and everybody's making a different movie. It's, <laughs> it's really, really weird. Yeah. Is it more weird than bad or is it pretty bad too? I think, I think it's better the way they did it than if they had actually made the movie they set out to make. Yeah. Because I think the movie they were setting out to make was going to be bad and nailed it as weird as actually good, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So you mentioned action figures. Uh, do you have statuettes too? Uh, I, I only have the statuettes that came with the uh, the Universal Legacy Edition DVDs a couple, uh, not a couple, probably 20 years ago now. Okay. And it's uh, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Dracula as busts. Oh, but yeah, than, I have those. Those are great. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. But other than that, I don't have any statuettes, but I do have a lot of action figures. Oh, wow. How about bobblehead dolls? I have a bunch of bobbleheads. I have uh, Bram Stoker bobbleheads. Oh, sweet. <laughs> uh, Dacre Stoker started uh, selling them a couple years ago. I, I got a couple of them off of them. Tracy, you sound intrigued by all of these uh, pieces of memorabilia. Is, is this the kind of thing that you would like to have? Dracula, dolls, statues, action figures? Oh, I think that would be so cool. Like, I, I really like stuff like that. And I would be fascinated. Do you have pictures or video footage of, of your collection that you have, Tucker? That I can find some for sure. Oh, wow. And would that be something that you would post on your website? I could. Oh, that would be, I, you know what, that would, I would be so happy to see that. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably be more likely to put it on Instagram than the website itself, but. Yeah. Oh, I, I will follow you on Instagram too. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I think that would be fascinating to see. It's one thing to chat about it, to put, to see it. I, I would be tickled fake. So thank you. <laughs> I've got one that's really a lot of fun. Um, a company called Sideshow Toys, they do real high-end statuettes and, uh, and action figures. And they had the Universal license for a while. They're actually the ones that did the Legacy Edition statuettes that we have. And uh, for Christmas one year, they did a, a special limited edition of Dracula in his Christmas PJs. So it's just oh, wow. Bellamy Dracula with red PJs on. I've never taken mine out of the box but I've seen pictures online. It's got the uh, it's got the back flap in the PJ, so he can. <laughs> <laughs> that would be priceless. That would be priceless. <laughs> I'd have to have two: one for the tree, and one just for keeps and store it away forever as a collector's item. <laughs> they were really difficult to get, and everyone was signed by Bella Gosi Jr. Oh my gosh! Oh wow! Wow. How about the Aurora models from the 60s and 70s? I love those. What about I, any of the Dracula models? I think they're fantastic, but I don't have any of them. You don't? No. I was never a model really. Kid, really. Well, if I have an extra one, maybe I'll send I, it to I, you. I really like the looks of if them. If you want. But I don't have the patience to build them. Well, I could send you a completed one. <laughs> <laughs> I would do all the work I for would you. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me see if I can find one. Let me work on that. <laughs> How about photographs? Are you big into some of the movie stills? I don't have any stills, but what I do have is a lot of uh, uh, playbills. Oh. I, I, I do uh, playbills from the various plays. That you've actually I, gone I to, right? No, I've never actually seen any production of Dracula on stage. The closest I ever got was uh, a couple years ago. There's, there's two guys that are working on a Bram Stoker musical. 
And me and my daughter went to see a workshop where they had a couple of the songs completed and we we're just trying them out. But I've n- I, every time, every time I've had an opportunity, something came up and I missed it. But I, I still go on and find playbills for the ones that I missed and the ones that I wasn't even born when they happened. I, I don't have a Lugosi playbill, but I have uh, Langella. I have uh, uh, Raul Julia. Oh, wow. I have, I have the, uh, the Kelly O'Hara musical that was done about 10, 15 years ago. And then I have all kinds of like minor productions. Oh, I have a couple more fantastic. that I can't remember what they are right now. Yeah, that's some great stuff there. It's incredible. Our guest is uh, Tucker Christine. Tucker is one of the leading experts and collectors of just about anything related to Dracula. He's also the publisher of the relatively new literary magazine, Dracula Beyond Stoker. It's a magazine that features uh, newly published articles related to the Dracula legend, and anybody can submit. Um, We'll also tell folks later on how they can subscribe to the magazine. I have the first uh, couple of issues. It's really well done. Uh, there's a great variety of stuff. Uh, one of the highlights is uh, that, that I remember seeing was uh, an article about Blackula, which is actually a derivation of Dracula, and a topic we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Tucker, I did want to get on to the subject of films, because as great as Stoker's novel is, and I think it is the greatest Gothic novel, the greatest horror book, uh, that's ever been published. Uh, it is an absolute classic. It's great writing, great storytelling, fantastic characters, including, of course, the title character of Dracula himself. But for so many people, they have experienced Dracula first and foremost uh, through film and to a lesser extent in television. And I want to talk about the adaptations, or at least some of the adaptations of the Dracula story to film. Um, And we begin not necessarily with the first. It wasn't the first. There was, uh, of course, Nosferatu, which came out in the early 1920s in the silent era. uh, And it basically was taken from the Stoker novel, very much against the wishes of Stoker's widow. Uh, She complained about copyright infringement. Uh, But when we talk about a good starting point, 1931 is certainly a great point for that. And that is the original Dracula with the great Bela Lugosi. Uh, I want to give my opinion on it. I'd like to get Tracy's opinion as well. Uh, my thought is that it's really not that good a movie. When I first saw it, I was disappointed. It's not edited very well. There's not much music. There really are no special effects. But there is one great characterization that carries it and makes it worthwhile. And that is Bela Lugosi himself. And Certainly from an historical standpoint, it's got a tremendous amount of value. I want to get your thoughts, Tucker. Do you agree with that assessment? Am am I being too harsh on the movie itself and maybe too complimentary toward Lugosi? What are your thoughts? You're you're definitely not being too complimentary toward Lugosi. I mean, as as great as the novel is, without Lugosi, we forget that novel. It's as simple as that. it wouldn't still be in print if it wasn't for that movie. Um, I don't, I, I go back and forth on that movie all the time. Sometimes I watch it and absolutely love it. And sometimes I get bored and turn it off halfway through. Mm-hmm. So I, you, so you're not, you're not being too harsh on the movie. either. <laughs> um, I think Todd Browning 
was in a depression when he made that movie. And I think he just, his heart, his heart wasn't in it. He wanted to make it with uh, Lon Chaney. And when he couldn't, I think he just gave up. I think he was, I think he, I don't know that he was locked into it, but I think he was, um, he, he, his heart wasn't in it and he didn't want to do it. Hmm. And it shows. I mean, Todd Brown, he was a great director and that movie is not directed greatly. When Browning wasn't there and apparently there were a lot of times he wasn't there and he wasn't active in leading the film, who was picking up the slack? Was it Lugosi or was it someone else? I think it was someone else. Uh, I don't remember who it was, to be honest with you, but uh, I've, I've heard stories of somebody else picking up the slack. Lugosi definitely wasn't. Yeah. Lugosi could hardly speak English at that point. You've seen the movie, right, Tracy? I have. <clears throat> it was actually my very first experience with a with a Dracula type movie, and um, I was I was actually really young when I saw it. And it it was a I thought it was a wonderful movie because I think I was probably maybe mm. ten or twelve years old when I saw it. Um, but it was a really <clears throat> excuse me a really great first experience, and I'm actually quite interested in trying to find a copy of the Spanish version that was done at the same time. Mm. And because I've never had a chance to see it and I am looking for a copy of it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I want to pick up on that with Tucker in a moment. Um, but when you do watch the film, I think as an adult, if you see it as an adult for the first time, after you maybe have seen some of the later films, uh, you realize that the 1931 Dracula it was still the early talking pictures era. The industry was still learning how to work with sound. It was still learning how to work with editing procedures. Uh, there was also a tendency for many of the actors to overact. Uh, and we watch it now and sometimes it's, it's hard to watch. Sometimes the humor in some of those early films from the 1930s, uh, they're just so corny and campy that it just, you know, it doesn't translate to a modern audience. That's not so much the case with, with Dracula, because again, there's not much of a comic emphasis, but it is very much a product of its time. It's, it's part of that early talking picture era and movie makers, you know, were, were still learning, you know, they were still working on their craft and their methods uh, we would see better productions with Frankenstein later in 31. Uh, and then, you know, with films like The Invisible Man, and then many years later, The Wolfman. Uh, so among Universal's pictures, it is it is fairly primitive. Uh, and again, it's because of that era. Tracy, though, brings up something really interesting that I hadn't thought about it. And that is that Spanish language version, which so many people seem to like. Have you seen it, Tucker? And, and if so, what do you think of it? I've seen it. Um, it's interesting. It's uh, it's more interesting as a footnote. They uh, people like to say that it's better. Um, it's directed better, but it's the same movie. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the guy playing Dracula is not half of Lugosi. He's he's when you say people are overacting, and it, he overacts his ass off. Oh, wow. <laughs> <clears throat> He's, he's almost like clownish in yeah. his overacting. But it, it, it is fun to watch, like I said, as a footnote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, if you've ever, have you ever seen it with the, uh, the, the score that Philip Glass did? No. 
Philip Glass did a score for it for one of the DVD releases, and it is fantastic. The, the, I listen to that score probably at least once a month. It's it's really great. So it almost changes the movie. It, yes. It, you can watch the whole thing no matter what you feel about it with that score. Tucker, I want to get your thoughts on some of your favorite Dracula films. And I know this is a daunting task because... You know, there have been hundreds of Dracula adaptations in print, but there have also been hundreds on film and in television, and it really is hard to boil it down to two or three. But if I could get your thoughts, if you had a top three Dracula films, any era, uh, it doesn't even have to be a film where Dracula is necessarily the main character, but he is featured somewhat prominently, somewhat significantly. Give us your thoughts, your favorite Dracula movies. So, so again, just like my illustrated books, this is going to change probably on a daily basis, uh, except for the Louis Jordan one. That Louis Jordan is always in the top three for me. I, I love that movie. I watch that movie at least once a year. Um, I don't think that he is great in it, but he is good. He's very, very good. I often say that I wish, I wish we could see a version of that cast and that screenplay but replace Louis Jordan with Jack Palance from the same time period. Mm. And I think that would have been the perfect Dracula movie for the seventies. I was, I, cause I think Palance was, was a great Dracula. I don't think that movie was a great movie though. Um, I, I love this. And this is just nostalgia speaking. Cause I know I've seen it as an adult and it's not a great movie, but I love the monster squad. Monster squad is, is really as a kid was, was so much fun. Um, I haven't and, seen that one in a while. It's been probably 20 years. Refresh my memory on it, if you would. The Monster Squad? Yeah. Monster Squad is essentially is essentially the Goonies meet the Universal Monsters, is what that movie comes down to. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a group of kids that love horror movies, and they happen to notice that Dracula came to town and is trying to, to put all the monsters together, take over the world. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's more fun as a kid. It's not, I tried showing it to my kids and my kids hate it. Mm. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was written by uh, Shane Black, who he, Shane Black did uh, Lethal Weapon. And he did The Nice Guys. He, he, he did uh, Iron Man 3. He, he, he did a lot of great movies after that. Do you remember um, who played Dracula in the film? A guy by the name of Dun- Duncan Rieger. I actually just met him at a Monster Mania convention not too long ago. Really? Yeah. Yep. He's still, he's still out and about. So you uh, like his performance I, for the magazine? A little, yeah. You, yeah. He's he's for for essentially a, a, a preteen movie. Yeah. He's he scares the hell out of you as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and how was he in person? Super super nice. Um, and and I do a thing with all my writers where I I ask them. I have I do little interviews with the writers that I use for promotional purposes on on social media, and one of my writers said that he was her favorite Dracula. So when I met him, I got her him to sign a copy of the book that she's in, so I could send it to her. Oh, that was sweet. Nice. Um, then the third the third movie was actually a would be another TV movie like the Louis Jordan one, the uh, the most recent Netflix movie. The, the miniseries with Clay Bang yeah. and Dolly Wells. I love that, especially the first two issues or episodes, rather. I, I recognize people's issues with the third one. 
I still enjoy the third one myself. I've watched that probably about six times in the last three years, but I, I think Clay's bang is, is excellent as Dracula. I think he brings across the humor that I find in the book and I, and it's been three years, so I'm not giving away any spoilers. I think Dolly Wells might be the best screen Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I agree with you about the first two episodes. Uh, they were top notch. They were excellent. And I think with a stronger third episode, that would have been a real classic. Uh, it's only been a few years, but a lot of people have either forgotten about it or have sort of brushed it off. Uh, but I agree. I think Clay's Bang was terrific. I think he mm-hmm. had... He had kind of a Lugosi look, uh, but with a, a better command of the language. Um, we also saw the transformation from him as an old man to a much younger, good-looking guy. Um, you know, the more that he was able to uh, take in blood from his victims, I, I thought he was outstanding. And I think uh, for some reason, people don't give the due to that Netflix series. Uh, I think you're right. I, I think and. For people that are way into it, like me, there are so many Easter eggs hidden in there. There are there are shots that are just taken directly from other movies. There, there's there's a couple shots that are taken directly from Louis Jordan. There's uh, shots taken right out of the Christopher Lee movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Easter eggs like the uh, the third episode where she's they go through the hospital and the hospital room is uh 80 1972 <laughs> you know it's like mm. that's, that's a room number <laughs> yeah it's, it's just little things and even in the uh the second episode the demeter episode there's easter eggs in there just for vampire fans in general you know but one of the first known uh recordings of a folklore vampire that was cons- a, a real person that was considered to be a vampire was a uh, a guy by the name of peter Pavlovich. And he's he's a guest on the uh, on the ship, you know. Yeah, <laughs> little little stuff like that. I really hope we get to see Clay's bang again in the role, whether it's in a miniseries, a feature film that hits theaters. I, I think he has more to offer. I hope this wasn't just a you know a one and done or a three and done. If you talk about the three episodes, but well, I, I was so impressed by him that I seek out everything he does now. Yeah. Does he do other horror, or is that is that the only one? He hasn't done any horror that I'm aware of that I haven't found any. But he did. He was just in a show called Bad Sisters, where he was. They called him the Prick. His his character's name was the Prick, and he was a prick. He mm. was, but he was so you love to hate him. He was so awesome in that role. Tucker, one of the um, things I've he's, he's in a bunch. I'm sorry. Go right ahead. I said he's he's in a bunch of Dutch movies too because he's he's Dutch. Yeah. I'm curious about some of the offshoots of Dracula, some of the characters that have developed over time that weren't Dracula, weren't named Dracula, but clearly were influenced. I think of Barnabas Collins in Dark Shadows, Mm -hmm. both in terms of television shows and also in movies. Uh, And then I think of someone like uh, Blackula. There were two films that were made in the early 1970s uh, they starred a terrific actor named William Marshall, who was uh, theatrically trained. And he came into that first movie, which the I guess the producers and the director really wanted to make it a comedy. They wanted to make it very campy. He said, no, I want this to be dignified. I want this character to, even though it's a villain, um, have some respectful elements. I want this done seriously and professionally. 
And I think he really carried those two films, William Marshall in the first Blackula, and then the sequel, which I think is actually even better, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Your thoughts on the Blackula films, and I wonder why they don't ever get remade, because I think with higher production values today, they could be huge hits. I think pre-pandemic, they were planning on doing a remake, and I think it fell apart. But I I love those two movies. Um, I can't remember when I first saw them. I was probably probably around the time that I discovered Tarantino in high school because hmm. Tarantino leads to the whole seventies black exploitation thing. And, and I got into shaft and that's probably when I discovered black Hill as well. Um, I, but I don't know why they haven't remade it yet, uh, I, but I probably cause it's, it's too good. You, know? yeah. you probably ruin it. Um, I, I believe personally that besides I think it's Blackula and Shaft are really the only black exploitation movies that are good movies on their own without the nostalgia factor, without the context of black exploitation. Yeah. They're just good movies. Um, in the first issue, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Brian Forrest, who goes, he writes under the name Toothpickings, he did a whole article about the history in the, of, of Blackula. And he's actually making a documentary right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that article was great, by the way. One of the best you've yeah, had in he, the magazine. He, he he loves he loves Blackula, Brian. And if you want to talk Blackula, you want to talk to him. I just have to figure out why he goes by the name Toothpickings. I haven't figured that out, but <laughs> he, he had a he had a blog that was called Toothpickings and a and a YouTube channel. And he it just stuck. Okay. Well, whatever the name, he does some great writing, and I look forward to seeing yeah, that documentary. He is great. And, he, and he writes with such a sense of humor, too. Yeah. How about Dracula television shows? Uh, the one that I really liked lasted one season on NBC. It was simply called Dracula. It was 2013. Jonathan Reese Myers played the role. It was a very different take on Dracula. He had some positive attributes in some ways. He was an heroic figure even though there was that sinister element. I love the show. Did you? I remember liking that a lot. I haven't seen it since it first aired. Uh, I remember really liking uh, Thomas Kretschmann as uh, Van Helsing. I was I really loved that he played Van Helsing and he played yeah. Dracula at the same time at uh, in the Dracula 3D. Um, I, I had never seen Jonathan Reese Myers before that, and I really liked his performance in there. Um, yeah. It was uh, was it Jessica Jessica the gal was was she Mina or Lucy I forget but she she was in that as well I think she was Mina she was, yeah yes I, I remember her being really good in it as well and the and the guy who played Renfield Renfield was as the assistant the 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 big guy yeah I can't remember what the actor's name was. yeah but that was yeah, a very that was different. that was an interesting it was I think it disappointed a lot of people because of how different it was because it. it I remember being disappointed the first episode saying this ain't Dracula. This isn't Dracula. And then by like the second or third episode, I'm like, but it's good. You know, mm. It's not Dracula, but it's good. Yeah. I mean, you, you can try something different, but if you're being creative and you're still maintaining some of the elements faithful to the original, it can work. And I thought it worked and I was disappointed that NBC canceled it after one year. But then again, you know, they canceled. There is a, the, the the creator of of that version of Dracula recently wrote a 
a whole blog about how things went wrong with interference from the studio and mm. they made him do stuff he didn't want to do and wouldn't let him do stuff that he did want to do. And I haven't read, I only read the first of four parts, but it, it's pretty interesting the way it gives you an insight into the way TV works and how you see these guys listed as creators, but not all of them have the pool that you think they do. That's Tracy, you had a question? No, I was just going to say, that sounds like an interesting show. I've actually never seen it before, but um, it, it is something I'm going to see if I can try to look back on. But but you are, you're a bright talker, though, when it comes to the creators of some of these programs, and they, they don't have full control, which is unfortunate. But um, with with Netflix, the platform Netflix, there's there's so many great possibilities with the new programming that they've been having. And they've, they've had some fantastic, you know, 10 episode series that have come forward. And I, I believe, you know, over time they'll, they'll have more really great episodes too. And, and the one that you guys were talking about earlier on Netflix, I haven't seen that one either, but that actually sounds quite fascinating as well. Yeah, that's a good one. And it's only three episodes. Uh, it's like watching three short films. So it's, it's really, it's one you can watch in, in a night or two, and it is very well done. We have just a couple of um, all three are actually. I'm sorry, what was that? All three episodes of the Clay's Bang one are feature length. They're all an hour and a half. Well, they are all that long. Yeah. Well, they were so well done, they went quickly, and yeah, I, I enjoyed watching each one. Uh, very well done, though that that series, and uh, I did like the uh, the Jonathan Reese Myers as well. We have just a couple of questions and a couple of minutes remaining with our guest Tucker Christine, uh, historian and uh, leading expert on Dracula. Uh, Tucker, tell us more about your literary magazine, how that got started, and how it's going for you. Okay, so. I live in Philadelphia, which is one of the best cities to live in if you're a Dracula fan, because we have the Rosenbach Museum. And the Rosenbach Museum holds the, excuse me, the handwritten notes that Stoker took while he was writing the book. And they put them on display and they do all kinds of exhibits and events around them. And I go all the time. I'm there constantly. Whenever they have a Dracula event, I'm there. And through that, I became friends with their uh, director of programming, Ed Pettit. When the world shut down for COVID, they tried to find a way to keep people engaged, even though they couldn't be open. So Ed started the Sundays with Dracula. And he asked me to be a, a revolving co-host on there. So I was on every fourth week talking about a different chapter of the book each time with him. While we were doing that show, somebody in the audience asked if there was a database of all the stories that were written by other people using Stoker's characters and, and locations and themes and stuff like that. And we did a little bit of research and found that there was not a complete list. You could find a list of like the 10 best or whatever, but there it was not anywhere near complete. So by the end of that day, I had a website registered and Ed and myself, uh, we started working on, finding all the ones we could that had novels, plays, and short stories that use Stoker's characters from that particular novel. And uh, we're up to, the database is up to 260 novels, I think, and 220 short stories. 
uh, we're close to 50 plays. I started doing children's books for a while, but again, that like, as in my own collection, that just got out of hand. Um, and then one day I was working on it and I just started thinking it'd be great to continue this because I'm, I, as many stories as I could find to put on the list, I tried to find so I could read them myself as well. And I was having so much fun reading them that I decided I, I wanted to keep it going. So I started the literary magazine that's also called Dracula Beyond Stoker, just like the database. And uh, I put out a call for people to start sending in stories. Uh, I, I picked the, the 10 best ones for the first issue and put them out there. And it sold really well. So then the second issue, I decided to do all stories about Renfield and same thing. I put out the call. People started sending in stories. I think for the Renfield one, there's 12 stories in that book. I think I had to read 140 stories to whittle it down to those 12, mm -hmm. but that, that's selling really well also. Oh, wow. um, and right now we're working on the, the Lucy issue. Uh, Lucy issue, I should have out by November. I try to do them in November and May, which is the bookends of the, of the book as well, since they're all, all the entries are dated. Um, so Lucy should come out in November and then I'll start working on the brides, which will be for next May. And we have a, we have a schedule for when we're going to do each character and what comes after we're finished doing characters as well. We do, we do have plans for other themes. Oh my goodness. I'm just Sounds exploring. like it's doing great. It's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun. Um, I haven't broken even yet, <laughs> but, but I'm having a lot of fun and uh, I'm getting close. So. Tucker, if someone wants to subscribe to Dracula Beyond Stoker, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, the best way. So I haven't figured out the subscription service myself yet. So it's all individual issues. Um, but as it's dbspress.com. Um, and that's, if you're outside of the U.S., uh, Amazon is your, your best course um, just because shipping is insane. It's ridiculous. I just shipped books today to Canada, and it was $30, whereas the, the same books shipped within the United States would have been $3.45. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the website, dbspress.com, yep. and you can order right through the website. You can order uh, right so through there the website. Been two issues have come out, correct? Two issues, and then I also have what I call a half issue because uh, I personally got bored waiting six months. So at like a three-month period, I put together a little book that has a single Dracula story and a single Renfield story, and I put that out to hold people over and myself. Now, I'm also I'm currently working on the 2.5 issue, which is going to be a little bit different. I found a story that was published in 1930, it's the earliest story that I could find so far. Mm. It was published just just before uh, the movie came out. Oh wow! It was it was broken down into two parts: the September and October issues of Weird Tales in 1930. It's called Another Dracula, and uh, I was able to, even though it goes into public domain in a couple years, I wanted to put it out now, so I was able to track down who holds the rights for it. I purchase the rights and that'll be coming out in August. Very nice. It, it, should, it should be going up on the website either this week or next week. Once I have everything finalized. It's a great idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's well executed. It's really nicely presented and I know it's going to do great for you. Final question for our guest, Tucker Christine, 
You just got back to um, or from a great place known for vampires, if not known for Dracula, and that is New Orleans. So tell us about your trip, and I believe you made some vampire-related purchases, if I'm not mistaken. I, I did. <laughs> so it was uh, uh, my and my wife's 25th wedding anniversary, so we decided to take a trip to New Orleans without the kids. And uh, so we spent four days down there. It was the uh, the heat index was 113 every day. <laughs> and we we walked we walked a minimum of eight miles every day in that 113 degree heat. <laughs> but every time we would get overheated, we just stop into a bar. <laughs> uh, there they have what they call the, the New Orleans Vampire Cafe down there, where everything is vampire themed. My wife got a, a sangria that they call Fangria, and it comes served in a blood bag. So she's sipping it out of a, a blood bag. <laughs> um, when you're in the Vampire Cafe. If the employees take a liking to you or find that you have an extra interest in vampires, they give you a card, a business card. It has an address on it and it's for their, their uh, speakeasy. Their, their speakeasy is around the corner on Bourbon Street and you have to walk into a jazz bar. If the band is playing, you have to walk behind the band to an exit door that's behind the bandstand. You walk out there and there is a, a man dressed as a vampire. He's got fangs in. He's got the white contact lenses in. He's all dressed in black, sitting out in the in, in the middle of the courtyard. Mm-hmm. You show him your uh, you show him your card. He takes the card from you, so you can't reuse it. You can only get in if you have the card. And he unlocks a, a secret door and lets you in. You walk upstairs, and you're in a vampire speakeasy. Wow. They have dead flowers on their centerpieces. <laughs> they have they have. Uh, vampire decorations all over the place they and there's essentially an absinthe bar and the owner of both places is also a writer and she's currently writing a vampire a southern vampire uh penny dreadful mm. comes out an issue at a time uh, it's called mosquito i was able to buy the first three issues there and it's, it's fun because each of the issues comes with a recipe of something that they serve in the, in the restaurant oh neat what a fascinating experience. It was a lot of fun. I wish we could go back. <laughs> Did you go in any <laughs> Did you go on any ghost tours or anything while you were down there? We did not. It was on our list, but we didn't have time to do the ghost tours. Oh my gosh, another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm officially jealous because that's the one place that I've not visited that I want to visit in these United States. It's uh it's a place with ghosts and vampires and voodoo and all sorts of interesting stuff. And uh, nobody in my family really likes to fly. So we'd have to drive down there. And I guess that's one of the problems, but we're hoping to get down there just like uh, Tucker and his wife were able to go to recently. Tucker, we really appreciate your time over this past hour. Thanks for being with us, offering your insights on Dracula in both book form, but also in films and also a wonderful look inside of your incredible collection of books and various kinds of memorabilia. Uh, Again, uh, Tucker's uh, literary magazine, Dracula Beyond Stoker, I highly recommend it. And if you go to dbspress.com, that is where you can order it. Again, it's dbspress.com. Tucker, Christine, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot from you tonight. So thank you again. And I'll share those pictures for you. Thank you. (laughs)
Thanks, Tucker. Thanks, Tracy. For Tracy Asteria, I'm Bruce Markison. Please join us next time at the Ghostly Gallery.